This week, we watched The Insider, which was nominated for Best Picture in 1999. And I got to tell you, Brian, I'm running out of heroes, man. Guys like you are in short supply. Ah, guys like you too, Mike. But Oscar nominations are in even shorter supply, so I have to ask you, do you keep this movie or kick it from the top five? I really like this movie. I really like it a lot, but I'm going to kick it. What? I'm going to keep it. Let's find out why coming up on this week's Best Picture This. Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. On this show, we dissect every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century to learn what they can teach us about the movies and decide whether we would keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. So far in 99, we've talked about The Sixth Sense, The Green Mile, and The Cider House Rules. Next week will be American Beauty, but today we're talking about The Insider, directed by Michael Mann. They're afraid of you, aren't they? They should be. The following is a sneak preview of the best-reviewed film of the year. An insider ready to speak the truth. And I want to go on the record. A reporter who will help him reveal it. What does this guy have to say that threatens these people? Together, I was told... Don't talk! Who is this? They will risk everything. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. Al Pacino. He's only the key witness in the biggest public issue in history. Does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Are we gonna air it? Of course not. Why? Because the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. Russell Crowe. I have to put my family's welfare on the line. My girls are crying. My children need me. You wish you hadn't come forward? You wish you hadn't blown the whistle? The movie critics call deeply moving. I fought for you and I still fight! A powerful edge-of-your-seat thriller. It will pin you to your seat. The best film of the year. Nominated for five Golden Globes. You go public, nothing will ever be the same again. Where's Dad? On TV. The Insider. A Michael Mann film. Didn't you hear that? That was the best reviewed movie of the year. So how did, how do you possibly kick that off the pedestal, Mike? Well, I mean, first of all, I think we need to acknowledge that it's the best trailer, not only of the year, but maybe of all time. It is a great voice. The the weaselly, usually you get that deep gravelly one, but this is kind of the weaselly gravelly one. This is so. a sneak preview. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think the first thing, well, first I need to know, was this the first time that you've seen this? Yes. Okay. I had never seen it. In fact, I thought it was sort of somewhat obscure. I'd never even heard of it really, but it was, um, I liked it. Yeah, 100%. I, I hadn't seen this movie up until last year. And up okay. a, and before that, I'd never even heard of it. Yeah. So I kind of feel like the first thing we need to talk about is that this, it, it's kind of non-existent in pop culture for some reason. It's really true. I mean, you never hear, if you hear Al Pacino, they're not saying, yeah, like The Insider, that was his best movie. It did get nominated for seven Oscars though. I mean, it was that year, apparently it was definitely talked about a lot. Best picture nominated. It didn't win any, by the way. Uh, best actor, Russell Crowe. Best director, Michael Mann. Best adapted screenplay, Eric Roth and Michael Mann. And it was also nominated for technical ones, cinematography, film editing, and sound. Well, so there were sort of big wins. dreams behind this when they were making it. Uh, Disney apparently hoped that it would have the same cultural and box office impact as All the President's Men, which I know I, you love. I love All the President's Men. I definitely was thinking about that Al Pacino as the journalist hero. You know, I'm a newspaper editor, so I certainly am. 
you're I, I a, love a, the, a great First Amendment martyr. Of course, of <laughs> course. But yeah, I always love it when a journalist is the hero. Yeah, so Disney backed this movie. They believed in it so much, they backed it with a $90 million budget, which is the biggest budget of any of these Best Picture nominees so far. Also very big considering what it really looks like in the end. I mean, there's no, like, they're not out on the open sea. There's no big explosions or building, you know, all that kind of stuff. So th- it's interesting that it was that big of a budget. Is it because the actors or what? Maybe the actors, maybe also because they went to the Middle East. Yeah, It true. seemed like that was on location. Uh, but this is the biggest of all the different uh, nominees from that year. The other ones, the Green Mile was the second biggest. That was $60 million, And the rest were in the 15 to 40 range. Yeah. But just take a guess. What what do you think this movie grossed? Give me a wild guess. I, I think I might have seen something, but I thought it was pretty decent, like over 100. You are so far off. It was made for 90. It grossed 60. Ouch. So this movie... I thought lo- it did well for some reason. I guess not. <laughs> it lost $30 million. <laughs> well, that's a great reason that it's... It's nominated for the Oscars. They usually don't do well, right? I, I guess. But <laughs> Disney at the time, they were kind of like, yeah, we get it when they saw how bad the box office was. I've got some quotes here that I love. So first of all, they said that they don't think that this movie was a notably dramatic and that its prime audience was 40 and above. So you're kind of limiting yourself there I'm, straight I'm 40, off the bat. So, you know, it's hitting me right, <laughs> right there. Uh, Joe Roth, who was Disney's chairman at the time, said the company was proud of the movie. They're glad they made it and all that stuff. But he described it as like walking uphill with a refrigerator on your back. Why is that? Because it lost money or? No, uh, the, the plot, the idea uh, of the movie. I think yeah. it's because it was so sort of um, intellectual. The plot also like anytime a movie is more than two hours, I think that everybody making it knows that this is defying some expectations of the moviegoers and at least it it certainly does for me and so i i'm always looking at like well does it deserve to be the three hours and i don't really think well not three this was like 240 i don't think it should have been that long although i did like it a lot but what did what did you think about the length was it bothering bothersome to you i thought a little bit about the length in the second half maybe maybe toward the third act but on on a whole i didn't mind the third act i mean and all of those quotes kind of make you think that this movie is going to be homework you know one of these um (laughs) one of these societal takedown one of these historical biopics that kind of feels like a like a cultural responsibility which you love those are my favorite kinds of movies (laughs) by far but those kind of movies that kind of feel like your responsibility to watch as a part of society they don't they're not something that you look forward to but I don't agree with this movie. It's fun. It's, it is. It's tense. The performances are, are really good. The big names help a lot with that. I mean, watching Al Pacino do his thing, like this is actually a very good Al Pacino performance, I think. And Russell Crowe is really good. It really reminded me of A Beautiful Mind, which we'll watch in a couple of yeah. y- years, a yeah. miniseries, so to speak, um, because he starts to get a little, mind starts to get a little warped. But Christopher Plummer was really good in it. Yeah, he's great and everything. Yeah. But I don't know. There's a momentum to this movie that I don't feel like those quotes give it credit for. Yeah. They they act like we're like this is only about learning something. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I didn't get that impression at all. I, I feel like there's a sense of of danger and kind of a um, uh, there's a suggestion of violence throughout this whole movie that to me made it feel like an action movie, except an action movie without guns without or action. violence or action. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought that actually. That, that is something that I had a little bit of a beef with because I thought that um, th- they, they, they seem to be kind of milking some of those moments. I thought like the bullet, you know, Russell Crowe has played, uh, he plays a character, Jeffrey Wigand, who is, um, you know, going to, uh, he, he's, he's going to be a whistleblower against Big Tobacco. 
And so there's a lot of threats of lawsuits and he's in danger because of that. And he gets the bullet in his mailbox. And I kind of thought that that was sort of like, they're trying to wring out every possible little, you know, fear out of that. It is a scary thing, but (laughs) you know, you see so many movies where there's people getting shot all the time and this one, it's not happening. Instead of it's, it's just a bullet in the back there. It seemed kind of like a weaselly threat in a way. They're all kind of weaselly threats, right? Yeah. Like the first time that they directly threaten him is, is through a computer. Through screen, you, you don't know yeah. who it was. There's that great scene where he's at the driving range and he's looking back at, toward all the way at the end. And there's a guy in a suit who's just kind of looking at He never at says him. anything. He never says anything. And you don't know for sure. I mean, we're pretty sure that yeah. this guy works for them and he's there for intimidation. But they don't explicitly say it. And so I think you get a lot of those nuggets throughout where nothing is happening, but something is happening in that nothing. And that builds the the tension. At least it did for me. Yeah. The psychological, you know, fears really where mostly it is. Um, but the, 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 the place where I think there is a lot of action up front is with this early scene in the Middle East that you, that you mentioned already. Um, you know, you start out with Al Pacino. You don't know it's Al Pacino yet, but the first thing you see is the inside of that blindfold, which I think is is a great move. Great opening shot. It, it's a fun thing, you know, it's it's weird. And it kind of sets you up for the weirdness of a lot of the other shots, the ultra close-ups, the strange angles behind people's ears all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was jarring and, and, and pretty successful with the cinematography. Yeah, so that first scene... A few times over the top. Yeah, that's Heavy-handed, part of the fun. That's but, part of the fun. But I'm willing to go with that if they're taking some risks. Yeah, and if kind of part of this movie is to be an action movie about inaction, you have to get that from somewhere. You know, you can't get it all from dialogue. You can't get it all from from looks. So I think the camera sort of has to play a big part in tipping us off in certain scenes that something's off. Why Why do we have a close-up on an ear? You know, why are ears important? <laughs> Um, I didn't think of the importance of the ears. Oh, the okay, ears are yeah. so important. Listening. Ears are important because listening is important because <laughs> words are important. Yep. And information is a weapon in this movie, no doubt. It's true. The only weapon that you really see much of. Although, again, going back to that first scene in the Middle East. So Al Pacino, we find out, we first see him when the blindfold is taken off. And I, I first thought <clears throat> that he was being kidnapped. And I think that's what you're supposed to think. Yes. He, he's, and then he's plopped down in front of the terrorist deputy in, up, up in this high rise looking out over the Middle East. And in that moment, you realize that he is not being kidnapped, but he actually wants to be there. He's sort of asking for it because he's trying to get this pitch for CBS. And um, I think that that moment, you're kind of setting him up to see him as like a mercenary. He's... he's um, yeah, CBS is, he's, he's, it's a commodity. You know, he's trying to get this interview and he's like selling him on like how great CBS is, how great 60 Minutes is. Um, so then several minutes later, when you go back to the Middle East again, and now you meet Mike Wallace, you know, the celebrity CBS uh, anchor. And he's got an attitude problem. He does. <laughs> in real life, he does. I mean, he's a yeah. prickly guy. Um, he died in 2012, by the way. Uh, right, Mike yeah. Wallace did. Um, but so Christopher Plummer, great, great performance. He also got nominated for some like other obscure, weird acting award, not an Oscar. Um, again, just like last time we talked about the Las Vegas Critics Society. Vegas? Um, so Mike, Mike Wallace, his character, it's a very dangerous situation. All these, you got all these bodyguards around the terrorist that he's trying to interview and um, they got guns. There's interpreters um, you know something could go wrong, and the terrorists are really calling the shots for the most part. But what do they do? They say, Mike Wallace, we need you to scoot 
a few inches away from the ter- from not they don't call him the terrorist the shake. So, but Mike Wallace has, has has wants nothing to do with it, and he just goes nose to nose with the guy with the gun, knowing that he can't understand anything he's saying. <laughs> um, so, he, but I think what it does, and he says. I'm 78 year old. I'm 78 years old. Am I an assassin? I'm going to kill this guy with my notepad. You know, it's a great moment and the passion there. But I think what it does is sets him up as the opposite of what Al Pacino's character is at the beginning. You have Pacino's uh, Lowell Bergman, the producer. He's like this mercenary uh, trying to just sell CBS. And Mike Wallace looks like the heroic journalist in that moment where he's going to, you know, he's standing up for the truth and he's willing to risk his life for it. And I think that 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 contrast is a really great setup. It's totally reversed by the end of the movie, uh, which I think is also compelling. And I was curious, you know, what you thought about that kind of, that switch, you know, in the end, he kind of becomes the, the mercenary himself, Mike Wallace's character does. Well, I think that first scene is important because in that scene, Michael Mann is telling us or showing us that the truth is something worth fighting for, yeah. right? Worth but dying for. Worth dying for. And it also sets up 60 Minutes and the free press um, as this paragon of, of truth, you know? Mm-hmm. They're on a pillar in that first scene so that later on when things change, it means something to us. But I mean, that, that first scene, it was so immersive for me. I mean, that's kind of what I'm talking about is as action movie, because you yeah. said you thought he was being kidnapped. And I, I thought the same thing. That's the way that you would shoot a scene where the spy gets captured. It's like a born identity. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a caravan, caravan rushing through the streets and people are moving out of the way and the camera's really shaky. Um, but to find out that it's just a newsman doing his job. Just a newsman? Just a simple Didn't we establish <laughs> this, that those are the true heroes? <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I just think that the camera does does a ton of work. And the same thing with uh, the first time that we meet Russell Crowe. Mm-hmm. He's leaving his office. We think that he's just leaving work, no big deal. But you have one of those super close-up shots on the ear when he's leaving. Yep. And then we see a security guard kind of taking note of him. I think he says something into his into his mouthpiece. So we're, we're kind of tipped off that something is off, but it isn't until scenes later, Russell Crowe goes home to his wife. They talk, but not really. You know, there are sort of words exchanged, but they're not important. And then it isn't until scenes later that we find out that he was actually just fired before then. But it sets up that whole idea that something is off. There's something that we need to keep up with throughout this movie. And I think that it's it's partly in the camera work and partly in how man gives us and doesn't give us information. I think it's, I think, you know, there's a sense of paranoia, you know, throughout the, oh, yeah. throughout the movie. And that kind of is it. You, you're supposed to really believe it when Russell Crowe's Jeffrey Wigan character is scared for his life. You know, that's that it has to happen that way for the tension to be there. That, that first scene again with Russell Crowe's uh, when he comes home, I think is really significant too, because some kind of games that I think Michael Mann is playing essentially with us. I mean, when, when Russell Crowe comes home, um, you, we, we, we see him as a family man. Um, he's telling his daughter, aren't, isn't it a little too early for cartoons? And meanwhile, he's pouring himself a drink, (laughs) you know? So he's like a troubled dad, but I think we sympathize with him and we like him. And then, uh, you know, a few, she has an asthma attack. a few shots later, he has this, she has an asthma attack. And what is he doing? He's teaching her to calm her down. He's teaching her the science of asthma, yeah. which is also a very cool touch. And it, it builds his character 
builds the tension. And he's using information to heal her, just like information, information is used to hurt people. That's in, very true in, in this movie. And and information is ultimately what he's what he's got to sell essentially to CBS, although he doesn't, you know, not that he's getting money for it. But I just think those family details make you um, like him and and understand him and. I think that's what Michael Mann is doing there. But there's other family things that kind of make me wonder about the sincerity. So Al Pacino as Luke, as Lowell Bergman um, in the story, uh, he is trying to coax, you know, at a glacier's pace, essentially. Um, that's where I think the refrigerator on the back feels a little bit apt, you know, in some of it where he's trying all these different ways to try to get Jeffrey Weigand or Russell Crowe to, um, spill the beans on big tobacco. And you have, uh, uh, Pacino, the journalist, you know, he's got the poofy hair. He's like too busy to comb his hair. He's looks like Bob Dylan. Um, he's surrounded by stacks of messy papers. Um, and he just, he's, when he's asking, when he's talking to Russell Crowe, you think, does he really care about his family? Cause he keeps asking him these family related questions. Hey, how are they, uh, you know, how are they, how are they, um, you got to say this in your Pacino voice, I guess. How's the wife? How's yeah, the kids? Yes, how's the wife and the kids? Which, by the way, so Jeffrey Wagon in real life loses his house in Louisville, just like he does in the movie. 8,300 square feet was the real house. 83, that's small. Yeah. I mean, my, my house is 7,000. I thought that was, I thought that was big. No, just kidding. But. Uh, so he's, he's asking all these questions at one point. He's like, you know, I, the only question I have is, will the Knicks make it past the semifinals? And I think, well, do you buy that? Do you think that he is genuinely befriending him and being a friendly character? Are we supposed to believe that he is, or are we supposed to think that he's faking it and being a mercenary? I, I think that we're supposed to see development there because this yeah. is his job and he's good at it. He's good at getting people to trust him so that they can spill their guts about something that they wouldn't tell anybody else. You know, go on national TV and drop the dime on your company. It's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So he has to have a certain skill set where he feels empathetic, even if sometimes he's not. But in this, when he's when he's interacting with Wygand, I felt like you can kind of see he seemed genuinely curious to me throughout the way. Maybe not in the very beginning, but after he gets to know him a little bit more and and he sort of um, he starts relating his struggle to his own with CBS, then they kind of become one. Yeah. When the two, when the two storylines blend, it, that's, what's really masterful about the storytelling, I think is how they, they do interact like that, those two storylines. But the thing that I thought was interesting is I kept asking, is Al Pacino being genuine? And the reason that you doubt it is because as the, as the viewer of the, sh of the movie, you think you already know, uh, Russell Crowe's character. Like we know him, Russell Al Pacino doesn't know him, but we know him because we've been in his house and we've seen his kids and his wife and we know like what his real life is like. Um, but then it's like this sort of commentary on storytelling and, and movie making, because why do we think that we know this guy? It's really because Michael Mann is using the same kinds of family tricks that Al Pacino is. I mean, Michael Mann is telling us mostly at the beginning that Russell Crowe is defined by his family, you know, the daughter, the asthma, you know, the cartoons, we have this rosy picture of him sort of as a family guy. And, um, is he sort of 
almost manipulating us as the viewer in the same way that Al Pacino is trying to manipulate him by getting in close with his family. Because who is Jeffrey Wy- who is Jeffrey Wigand in real life? Uh, I actually went back and looked at the source material for this, the Vanity Fair article that the movie was based on. It's called The Man Who Knew Too Much by Marie Bren- Brennan. Um, and she has this she has this quote that kind of says that he is like a we're tempted to see him as like this good guy against Goli- you know David and Goliath, but really in real life, Jeffrey Wigand is kind of a, a prickly, pretty difficult character. And that article that this is based on starts out with the journalist um, interviewing him at a restaurant, and he seems crazy in the first scene. Not crazy, but he's he's a little like out of control. Um, I thought that was interesting that that's how you meet him in the article. But in the movie, you meet him as kind of the good guy, family guy. And he's totally in control, especially in that asthma scene. You yeah. Know, he knows exactly right. where the equipment is. He knows how to talk to his daughter. Once he does, the asthma attack settles and she's okay. But I think what you're saying, it all, it all sort of comes back to the question of who is the insider, you know, of the, the titular insider in this movie. Is it Crow, who we meet first, who was nominated for Best Leading Actor, not Supporting? Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. He's kind of the protagonist. He owns the first half of this movie. But as as we continue to watch, things change. And all of a sudden, it becomes Pacino's movie in the second half, where it becomes more about the free press. It becomes more about the inner workings of CBS and how much power corporate should have compared to uh, news like the separation of church and state and all that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Who do you think is is the insider? Who's the protagonist of this movie? Well, I think that, um, again, we're supposed to kind of see it as Russell Crowe's movie, although the movie poster has Pacino on top, which I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. I don't know if that you know makes that much a difference. Ultimately, I thought that um, we sympathize more with Al Pacino as the movie progresses and a little bit less, partly because we start to see Al- Russell Crowe's character, Jeffrey Wigand, as exposed, you know, he's kind of betraying Al Pacino by having these skeletons in his closet. He was, you know, nabbed for shoplifting. He said it was a mistake. Um, and, uh, you know, he had a, he had trouble in his marriage. Um, his wife leaves him and you think, well, this is just, is it really just for this one thing or has there been trouble all along? And there has been, you kind of find that out later. So I think you sympathize more and more with Al Pacino as the movie goes along. And it's kind of like, you, you said this is kind of like an action movie. I saw it as basically a buddy movie where they become closer and closer. Like it starts out where like you're skeptical. He's he's sending these faxes, which is a great scene. Oh, it's They're, the first time that they talk. I, another yeah, time let, where the communication is indirect. It's another mode of communication. Yeah. The first time they meet is through a fax the machine. handwritten fax machines where he's saying can't, don't, won't, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But then at the very end... Um, after he goes through and decides to go through the court battle, decides to risk everything, loses his wife, loses everything, he ends up in the great another great reversal in the same hotel room where they first met, and they decided that they were not pals. In the you know early on, like twenty five minutes in, at the end when he's back in the hotel, he only has one friend, and that's Al Pacino as Lowell Bergman. And he's calling from vacation in the middle of the ocean, also a lonely shot, you know, in, in the dark. Yeah. His 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 poofy Bob Dylan hair is like matted down <laughs> and wet, right? So it's got sea spray in it. Oh you yeah, know, it's just yeah. it's but suffering. It's, it's dark, and and he's the only person 
who seems to care about Jeffrey Wigand anymore. So that I think that to me that was kind of like this is really about that relationship between the two of them. That's the human element of the story. Um, so I kind of I, more and more I you know you see really Al Pacino as the hero. He's the one who stands up to CBS. He goes from being the um, trying to coax the whistleblower to becoming the whistleblower, which yeah. is a great a great reversal. Before we get too too yeah. far though, let's stick on that scene because it's my favorite sequence. Which one of the movie? About? The hotel scene. Yeah. So the first one or the last one? The last one. Okay. Yeah. So in this scene, uh, Wigand is in his hotel room. This is after he's been told that his segment is not going to air. So he's thinking all of the things that I've suffered through were for nothing. Mm -hmm. My wife left me and he feels like he's at the end of his rope, right? There's some really cool music playing in the background. It's like the music is interesting. I love the music. It's sometimes over the top again. It's a little over the top, but yeah, it it goes with that whole style. I think he's going for (laughs) Yeah, It really worked for me. So, um, in that scene, we sort of assume he's been drinking and was it just me or did you, did you think they're trying to tell us that he might commit suicide? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's why Al Pacino is, feels like this urgency to call the hotel and get him there. Yeah. But think about why, you know, we know that all that's happened, but I don't think Michael Mann shows us an alcohol bottle. I don't think he shows us any pills. He doesn't show us a gun. All he shows us is Russell Crowe sitting in a chair looking dejected and staring into space while the hotel manager calls him to say, hey, there's someone on the, on the phone and he ignores him. So in this sort of, in the scene, it, it's this action movie as in action, it's in action as an action movie yeah. again, because sitting still in the hotel by himself. Yes. Not much action. There. Break it down. He's sitting still by himself in a hotel and a hotel manager is trying to get him to pick up the phone and that's it. But we're convinced this guy's about to kill himself. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite part of the sequence is when the background. Don't tell me what the wall goes wobbling. It's so good. That can't be the best. Fi- that can't be the favorite moment. Oh, it's. I'll so, let you have your so, favorite moments. It's so good. The, the background <laughs> is sort of like wallpaper or a mural, and then starts sort of dripping in this way where it's like this waking, waking dream, waking nightmare. See, you're kicking the movie, but I'm keeping it. But I still think that was that 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 moment is where it felt a little heavy-handed to me. Although the thing I liked about it was that it echoes Mike Wallace. Because I usually think of, I usually thought of Russell Crowe echoing Pacino and they're kind of like opposites of each other. You know, he's wearing white and Pacino's wearing black in some of the scenes, you know, divided by a tree like on the lawn as he's about to go to court and things like that. I thought that, usually I saw that, but when when he's there and the 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 wall turns into his thoughts or his, you know like a window into his family it sort of bleeds into it's a like video a gr- of his backyard and he sees right. his da- his daughters there but it's like i felt like that was a green screen that's what i think it's supposed so to so it was echo. just the effect that you didn't like the the effect looked looked too cheesy to me i maybe it's just dated from 99 <laughs> i don't know i usually think of 99 as not that long ago i you know i wasn't i was 19 at the time but but when the only the other it, I think it was a green wall that kind of turns into that, and so I think we're meant to think of Mike Wallace sitting in front of the green screen with the with the um, with the interview that he did, hmm. and I, I never quite worked that out in my mind like how that's connected, but I feel like um, that that's that's echoing like you know I don't know he's projecting his reality, which is what happens with the TV show. I mean, they're trying to pretend like it's the background is, you know, they're somewhere else when really they're just in this fake studio. Um, but anyway, I thought that, uh, I thought that, you know, uh, Al Pacino says something also, um, 
one of the great, the, the most, I think, emotional moment in the movie is in that scene. And he says something to the effect of, there's a lot of people who care about you. Uh, which you don't really know at that point if they honestly do. Although really I think he's talking about his children. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, don't basically don't kill yourself. There's people who care about you. Um, and he talks about the heroes. I mean, the, the background bleeding, the, yeah. the wallpaper bleeding is a flourish. <laughs> there's, there's no doubt about that. Well, it's the only time in the movie that they do something weird like that. Yeah. Uh, that weird at least. Yeah. It's, so. the, it's the only sort of overt <laughs> special effect. But I mean, as a, as a sequence, I think that he does so much. Yeah. He conveys so much with so little, um, which I kind of feel like the entire movie is, is great at. You know, mm-hmm. it's people in rooms talking, people in rooms saying that they won't talk. People finding bullets in their mailbox. People getting that, faxes. Yeah. I mean, these are not exciting things, but 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 when if I'm I watching fax, it, I, I I'm into excited. it. You know, I'm feeling like, oh God, not this fax machine. What's it going <laughs> to say this time? <laughs> you know, it becomes a very dramatic thing, even yep. though at face value, it's kind of the total opposite. Um, I have a, a quote from Newsweek that's that's really short that I love. Um, David Anson, when in his review, he said that man could probably make a movie about needlepoint riveting, and I'm totally on board. <laughs> yeah, I'm completely on board. What? So, I, what else is Mike? Is Michael Mann done? Because I'm not really that familiar with him. Done Heat. He's done Collateral. I did. I did see Collateral. It's been a long time though. Collateral, so. super fun. Huh. Miami Vice. I mean, I know that you're big on boats. <laughs> <laughs> you're a big speedboat I'm a, guy. I'm a boat guy. Yeah. <laughs> you made Ali. He's done a bunch of stuff. Very good. Um, let's do trivia. Trivia from the insider. I have four things that are pretty fun. Okay. Um, ABC was kind of the competitor, right? For, uh, for CBS at the time. So it's like CBS is trying to get the story. ABC is trying to undermine it. Wall Street Journal is trying to undermine it all. And ABC doesn't have a whole lot to do in it. But in the Vanity Fair article that this was based on, it says that ABC's counter story had its own problem with sources, one of which was nicknamed Deep Cough. Oh, no. Deep Cough. That's bad. That's great. Oh, I because hate it. it's about tobacco, you know? They're coughing. So deep, but deep cough, throat, deep throat, you know. Uh, yeah, no. It's hilarious. See, if you liked that, <laughs> but you didn't like the melting wallpaper scene, no, no, no. this is not going to work. <laughs> this podcast is this over. This is deliberately jokey, though, you know, the, the, the fading uh, thing. Anyway. So you think that lying to the American people is <laughs> jokey? That's something that we should take. <laughs> we should we should laugh about. Okay, trivia number two. Uh, Russell Crowe plays Jeffrey Wigand. He was going to be Val Kilmer. I saw that. Very different movie. Very different movie. Very different movie. I think Russell Crowe does a great job. This is kind of is this peak Russell Crowe? I mean, we got three movies in a row: ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one, where he's in a Best Picture nominee, yeah. which is pretty remarkable. Um, in he, this movie, he was only 33 years old. Really? He's 33. He's I mean, got that graying hair. You could, I, it's I mean, convincing I that like he's older. I you could tell the, the white, you know, his eyebrows, yeah. his hair. I felt like yeah, that was... Makeup. But the rest of the makeup is really good. I was surprised to find out that he he's, was 33. He put on 35 pounds. Yeah, he does role. look a little frumpy, you know. Got the big white shirts. He's falling down the hill. <laughs> that's a nice scene. But also Russell Crowe later, you know, is Master and Commander, which is nominated. He's in Les Miserables, and he's he's which is nominated later. I think that sometimes I don't really think of like Russell Crowe as like one of the greats of the last fifteen years or twenty years or whatever. But 
realistically, he's going to come up a heck of a lot in this podcast. Oh, and yeah? I think that's pretty interesting. What did you think of his performance here? I thought it was good, but I think he's a lot better in A Beautiful Mind. And it feels similar role. The, the greatest moments in The Insider are similar to what he does even better in A Beautiful Mind. So, But it's been a long time since I saw The Gladiator, too. So I'll be curious to yeah, kind of compare all I three. I haven't seen A Beautiful Mind in, in a while. And yeah. I like him a lot here, but I feel like... If you're comparing him and Pacino, Pacino's better. Weirdly, Crow has the sort of showier performance, right? He's yeah. got a lot of like adjusting his glasses and adjusting his tie and clearing his throat. And Those are the action moments that we have from him. Yeah, adjusting he does a lot of tie. jaw acting, you know, where he kind of like <laughs> moves his jaw around in weird ways. Yeah. Where you're supposed to know this guy's stressed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Pacino. I mean, we 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 were talking about him before we came on, but no, he's Pacino. Great. Pacino's he's great. great. He sounds like. He seems like he's not acting, that it's just him, but that that's what makes him great. Yep. One more thing on Crow. Uh, say, this, say this in the in a Pacino accent. <laughs> I'm going to be doing a lot of Pacino in, in this. <laughs> uh, but Premier, they ranked Russell Crowe's performance number 23 of the 100 greatest performances of all time. In this movie. Number 23. Of all time. Yep. That's, that is ridiculous. He was fine. Does that he make you two things? Pissed off and, and curious. curious. I think <laughs> that it? I think Russell Crowe was was good for sure, but he just didn't seem as great as Christopher Plummer or Al Pacino to me. Hmm. Um, another little trivia point: the original title of the movie was "Man of the People." Ooh, that's what it was. Fil- that was the working title when the scenes were filmed in Israel. I mean, honestly, I think that's bad, but I don't think the, the insider is not much, much worse. I mean, much better. No, it's, I'm much better. I mean, it it didn't help people coming to see this because you don't no. you, you don't really know what it's about. And the same thing from that poster. It's just yeah. them looking off into the distance with gray backgrounds. <laughs> um, and so you all you know is that it's a movie about Al Pacino and Russell Crowe. Trivia point number four, final one. Jeffrey Wigand, um, he, in real life... Um, in a New York Times article, it said that he did not receive, he refused any money from the film. Didn't, didn't make a dime. Really? He said, my pay is psychological, which is awesome. See, Props that, to that Jeffrey surprises Wigand. me though, because I feel like man goes out of his way not to glorify him in this movie. You know, you have Al Pacino's character who Mike Wallace calls the great First Amendment martyr. He loved the movie. He Jeffrey Wagon did, did, did. yeah. He just didn't take any money from it. He he went to the premiere with his daughters. They were proud of him, all that stuff. So that's cool. But Russell Crowe makes a point, or Jeffrey Wigan makes a point in this movie to say like two or three times that he had no intention of breaking his confidentiality agreement and whistleblowing on the company, but he doesn't like to get pushed around. And they pushed him around. They started intimidating him. And that's why he, he does all this stuff. So yeah. it's kind of not your traditional David and Goliath where we're supposed to feel like this guy is is the paragon of truth um and morality you know it's kind of that it's a little bit vengeful he also started a he moved he moved away and he started a uh, when he was teaching in a different state he started a anti-tobacco nonprofit with one staff member himself nice you know he's serious about this he's and he finds remarried. chemistry magical he which does. was another great <laughs> that line. was a good line yeah so many great lines here. So takeaways. All right, takeaways. takeaways. I will say this is a trivia and a takeaway. Quentin Tarantino included this movie in his list of top 20 films released since 1992. Really? Um, 
which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. I like it a lot. I wouldn't put it quite that high, but I'm also not going to argue with Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> you don't want to know what happens to you if you do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another takeaway is the last shot of the movie where Al Pacino, this is another inaction as action, walks out into the streets of the New greatest- York City. Color pop. That's the greatest color pop of all time. <laughs> it goes into super slow-mo. And this guy is a producer for a news TV show. No, he's a journalist. That's yeah. what makes him so cool. Okay, he's a journalist. He's a news producer. <laughs> whatever. But he pops his collar in slow motion Boom. and walks out. And Is he wearing a trench coat? Yeah. I feel like he's wearing a trench coat. Into the blue, you know, the, it's like this midnight blue kind of a filter on the, on it's the camera. It's amazing. That is a nice ending, the last shot. So actually... It makes I, him so cool. Like, I love seeing... I love how directors will pay very close attention to the opening image and the closing image. And that's what you get. The beginning is a white inside of a of a uh, blindfold mm-hmm. and the end is him out in the open popping his collar like you know i'm back into back for he's the got next his adventure. swagger back he does have a swagger swagger back so i am kicking this movie but i feel like under different circumstances if 99 wasn't 99 quite was as good game. this movie would stick and if it was like it is today where there are 10 oscar nominees it would make it for yeah. sure but I just feel like I have to make room for other titles. Which you would not reveal yet? I, I'm not going to reveal them yet. Is Blair Witch going to be in your five? I, I, I you can't tell to me? say. You I won't tell me? I can't tell you. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. My takeaway, by the way, on this is thinking about true, pick, true, true stories versus fictional. Okay. I think that sometimes when you have a story that is based on facts that just happened, you know, this was only a few years ago that this happened. In fact, some of it was in 98. Um, and the movie came out in 99. So I think sometimes it's a little bit distracting to me because I keep thinking like, is this actually true or did, are they manipulating us? Cause I think sometimes that is, you know, they have to cherry pick, they're telling a story, but in the end, um, and, and when you have a purely fictional story, that's just written, you know, original screenplay, let's say, or, or based on a novel, even you, you're not worried about that. It's a little less distracting. So I think, but then with the best, with the, based on a true story, you get the kind of, I'm learning history. There's something momentous about it sometimes when you feel like you're reliving this great thing. So, um, but in the end, I think that what, what all of, whether it's based on a true story or not, Michael Mann does succeed in kind of turning this into like a, a sort of a, a mythological, you know, force of, um, they're standing up for the truth and they're risking everything for it. And um, I think it works. So, well, I said before that Wigan wasn't completely, you know, uh, moral because he is kind of doing this for revenge in a way. Mm-hmm. So is Al Pacino, you know, doing it for revenge. Yeah, when he he's how's he, he doing it for revenge? Well, because they let him down. They were supposed to, the whole movie. Oh, the first you mean sort that they're when he w- blows the whistle on CBS? He blows the whistle to CBS. Yeah. He calls the New York Times and tells them that they caved to the corporate pressure and they didn't run the story. Another great Pacino line where, did he talk? Yes. Are we going to run it? Of course not. <laughs> it's the more true, yeah, the more the truth worse he tells, it, the, the worse, worse it gets. gets. That's another great line. I actually don't think that he's doing it for revenge. I think that he comes across as the most purely motivated You don't character. think it's vindictive at all? I don't think so. I think, I think he I think wants the truth the out. And he doesn't care who gets hurt by the truth. He wants the truth out. He's going to lose his job. CBS might lose everything. Mike Wallace might go down. Um, his legacy might be damaged. But... All that really matters is that the truth is there, and he's he can't he can't compromise on that. Do you think that Wigan's testimony changed anything? 
You mean as far as tobacco coming down? As far they as had the, to pay two hundred forty-six billion dollars in fines. The world of this movie. Are we supposed to think that that his testimony changed anything? There is not. You don't really get. No, you don't really get that in the end. You don't get the fact that like, oh, wow, now people are stopping smoking and all the big companies are hurt now. You don't really get that. Yeah, I don't think it matters in the movie. And I don't think that man That cares. is interesting. I, I think he he cares way more about process. And the that, First Amendment? I mean, is, he, is that part of what he's fighting for? I mean, I don't see it as a message movie. I don't see it as, as one of these... Um, these movies about this is an important thing that happened that we can learn from. I think that he is most interested in characters and motivation. And it's not about uh, the what that's important. It's purely the how and this, the why, I guess. This is not a message movie. It's even better. It's a Pacino movie. Yeah. And it is better than a message movie. <laughs> a message movie could be, uh, they could be a little, a little condescending. To, uh, that's how I find them. Absolutely. I All agree. Right. All right. So, this was the insider. I, I think that we did it. I, my, you, you're keeping it. I am sort of regretfully kicking it. You didn't change your mind yet? Oh, I wish I could, but <laughs> maybe if it was 98. You've already decided on your, on your five of them. <laughs> I haven't really decided fully. I've done a lot of homework catching up on the, uh, the other movies from 99 that were not nominated. Yeah. There are a lot of good ones there. But mm-hmm. next episode, Brian, we're going to be talking about the winner of the Oscar, the best American picture. American Beauty. American Beauty is uh, is next week, directed by Sam Mendes and starring Kevin Spacey, Annette Bening, Thora Birch, bunch of people. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Best, best Picture This or on Twitter. I'm at Mike Cav underscore. I'm at BR McMillan. And also remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. So, Brian, you want to... Uh, You want to say the final line? Until next time, thank you for listening to Best Picture This. And remember, chemistry is magical.